spectacular podcast known as Total Reboot, the only podcast on the internet that digs deep and discusses cinema. My name is the fantastic Mr. Alexi Toliopoulos, and joining me, as always, is the cunning and mm. the most effervescent Mr. Cameron James. Latin name, Homo erectus, which of <laughs> course stands for human being who has a stiff penis. Oh, behave. <laughs> <laughs> Cam, we are talking about heist movies at the moment on Mm. this mini-series. We've been talking about some very interesting- We've been jumping around the different kind of tones that we can fit into this genre. Mm. And today is no exception. This was one that we did not have planned originally, but one of our Patreon subscribers- Timothy GR did suggest this. He simply just posted, is Fantastic Mr. Fox a heist movie? We watched it. We checked it. The answer is a resounding yes. (laughs) So we're talking about Wes Anderson's first foray into the world of stop motion animation on today's podcast. I mean, if if you're not counting the small interstitial moments in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, then sure, I'll, I'll I'll say this is the first foray into stop motion, and it won't be the last. Let's say that. Yes, because there actually because there already is already made another one. one. And there's, I think there's another one in production as well. I so. believe so. I think that he likes working in this realm of little toys, as I yes. like to pretend they are. It's almost like this guy prefers to be able to literally mould the facial expressions <laughs> <laughs> and the body language of the people that he's directing. Almost yeah. as if he wishes that Billiam Murray and all the other guys and gals that populate his regular list of players is almost as if he wishes he could reach over to them with his hands and squish their freaking heads into whatever the hell he wants them to look like. <laughs> Are you saying this guy's a control freak? No, I would never say that about Wes Anderson. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be honest with you. I've gone through a huge Wes Anderson phase in my younger years. Mm -hmm. Loved, loved everything he ever did. Got excited for every feature film that would come out and the short films as well. Yeah. Talking about Hotel Chevalier, etc. Oh, good Lord. I love it when they've got a short film preceding a feature. Yes, that somehow ties in. But I think in recent years, I've drifted from the aesthetic. I still enjoy it and I still enjoy watching the older films, but the newer ones haven't grabbed me as much. I feel like the whole Wes Anderson of it all has gotten a little too much for me. And that's not, I'm not saying it's a negative thing. I still, I think Mm. it's great that any artist has their voice and that they spend a lifetime pursuing and perfecting the thing they want to express. But um, yeah, I'm just in an off season at the moment, Mm. perhaps. I think it's kind of interesting because Wes Anderson definitely is the auteur that our generation not discovered, if you will, but more like he was the auteur that came up while we were all becoming cinephiles. And I think he's Mm. very responsible for a lot of people our age becoming cinephiles, becoming interested in film. And getting into advertising. Yeah, getting into advertising. directing for uh, TV commercials. (laughs) And, you know, as much as a director we're going to talk about secretly later on in this miniseries, but, like, alongside Quentin Tarantino, Mm. very much was- 
shaped a generation of films that exploit their aesthetic and exploit mm. their charms. Like, you know, we also grew up in the era of like Wes Anderson exploitation, where you've got yeah. stuff like Nacho Libre, Napoleon Dynamite, to mm. name two films by the same director. Hess. Was that Jared, Jared Hess? Hess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's plenty of others. Uh, even early Taika Waititi films are kind of replicating the Wes style a little bit. It was- Pretty fun, I imagine, for a lot of young filmmakers to see and go, fuck, I also am a very particular person. I also mm-hmm. enjoy Roald Dahl and J.D. Salinger and this yep. era of, like, 60s, 70s music. Yes. it was pre- And it was fun. It was fun to kind of be there and watch it all happen, too. But I feel like maybe the- the proliferation of it has kind of diluted the effect that the actual Wes has on me. I've mm. I've actually reached a point where I'm a bigger fan, possibly, of his collaborator, Noah Baumbach. Wow. Yeah. And, like, I remember when The Squid and the Whale came out, I thought, mm. oh, this is a little biting on the Wes style. Mm, that could be categorized as a Wesploitation <laughs> yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, but now I get really pumped for any fucking Noah Baumbach film that comes out. Mm. And I, I think he's- he touches on the same territory, even visually and definitely thematically, but it has a more, I don't know, it's like more fucking real or more like down mm. to earth or something to it. And I, I respond to that a little better. I think I've been on like a bit of a swing arc with Wes Anderson where he was super responsible in the early days of me becoming a cinephile, like getting mm. in touch with the films that were happening at the time. I remember seeing Darjeeling Limited in the cinema with like a group of friends and just absolutely loving it. Mm. And then I think I went on a bit of a downward arc especially around Moonrise Kingdom. Mm. I remember seeing it in the cinema and just like it's not really resonating with me at all. And still one that I find a little bit difficult to get into. Yeah. And then- it's a shame though, because it's got such a great Bruce Willis performance, you know? Oh, I love that performance. And, and Ed Edward Norton, Norton is a great yeah, player like, in that franchise they're as well. All, they're all pretty great in it, but as a whole, mm. it kind of almost felt like- I think we've talked about this. It kind of felt like he's- Playing the hits, mm. you know, like there's a young Max Fisher type and uh, a young, um, what's her name, Tenenbaum, Margot Tenenbaum. It's, it's like they're the two leads. It's really strange. Yeah. But the thing that I kind of have gotten into in like this late period, Wes Anderson, I've loved him kind of once again embracing genre again. And I think Fantastic Mr. Fox, there's evidence of that, obviously. Like, this is a straight up and down genre movie. And it's also probably his straightest comedic film as well. But I've also really loved his genre explorations in, like, Grand Budapest Hotel. Because I think that was one that I actually felt scared. Like, the Willem Dafoe character in that movie genuinely kind of spooked me out a little bit. I was hoping to see him follow perhaps some more dangerous ideas with like playing with genre and making things a bit more exciting. And then I really, really did like the French Dispatch quite a lot because each one of those segments felt like a different exploration of something beyond a bit more of his love for the New Yorker. Yeah, I have to confess, I still haven't seen the French Dispatch. Confess your sins, brother. How do you feel about not seeing it? Do you feel guilty? I remember feeling so excited when that teaser poster was first released and I could Mm -hmm. see the list of cast. I thought, oh my God, this is everyone. It's like new people 
people that are exciting to see in that world and yeah. all that shit. But then I, I think it got delayed, remember? There was that big delay by about a year. Yes, of, of course, of coronavirus, the world-famous pandemic that we all suffered through. Yes, the man-made disease that was mm-hmm. spread via the CIA to kind of halve the world's population, Thanos-style. Thanos was must have been an inspiration for the worldwide <laughs> coronavirus because we saw half our population halved. Yeah. That's right. One quarter one of the quarter. population. Yeah, we call it the snap here in uh, our territory. Mm-hmm. So, But then I think the closer it got to release, the less interested I was. I remember you liked it. My wife went and saw it. She really liked it. But I still haven't pressed play wow. on the fucking thing. All your loved ones went to see it. They all yeah. liked it. Yeah. You would love Jeffrey Wright. When you're talking I about the excitement for the new players, yes. Jeffrey Wright is like made for Wes Anderson. I never even thought about it until I heard his first utterance of dialogue in the movie. And I'm like, this guy, where's he been all Wes's life? Yeah, I love Jeffrey Wright. That might be the one thing that gets me over the line with pressing play on this thing pretty soon. Mm. But speaking of people that are made for delivering Wes Anderson's dialogue, I do believe that- George Clooney is one of those people. God, we will have to go deep on that idea mm. because that's something that I really, really picked up this time on the film. Shall we get into it? Let's dig down deep underneath the earth, light up an acorn, and talk about Fantastic Mr. Fox. And so it begins. Welcome to the fantastic world of Mr. Fox. Woo! Should we dance? His life is fantastic. Pure wild animal craziness. His wife is fantastic. If what I think is happening is happening, it better not be. His neighbors. Not so fantastic. This is Boggus, Bunce, and Bean, three of the meanest, nastiest, ugliest farmers in his valley. What was that? They're digging us out. But they're about to discover... Oh, Foxy. Is help on the way? He's one fox. I've got an idea. You can't outfox. Mole, what do you got? I can see in the dark. We can use that. Rabbit, I'm fast. Badger. Demolitions expert. What? Since when? Fantastic Mr. Fox is officially a film by a man called Wes Anderson, co-written by Noah Baumbach, one of my guys, who Alexi yes. thinks is actually a rip-off artist of Wes Anderson. No, 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 that's not what I said. Earlier. I did not say rip-off you artist. Said I said he's a fucking rip-off artist and he's a fraud. I said he's a Wesploitationist, okay? <laughs> I don't think that's ripping off. I think that he was doing something in the mold of and since has also grown to be one of the great filmmakers. Marriage Story, loved it. Meyerwitz Stories, loved it. Mm-hmm. Anytime the guy tells a story, yeah. I'm sitting there either in the cinema <laughs> or on the couch, press and play. Greenberg Story, loved it. <laughs> I love the Greenberg Story. <laughs> I love the Greenberg Story. I love Mistress America Story, yeah. Francis Haas Story. Yeah. I love all, love his, all stories. his stories. He's a good storyteller. Um, and speaking story of telling teller. stories, there is no mm-hmm. greater story that can be told than the logline of a film. <laughs> Welcome to our favorite section. Love that logline. Alexi has found a synopsis for the Fantastic Mr. Fox somewhere deep on the dark web. And mm-hmm. he's going to read it for us now. And we'll decide whether we love it or hate it. How do we rate it? Lex, let's hear that logline. Well, you're about to hear the logline, darling. And I found this logline in a way that I 
oft do connect with Wes Anderson's works through Criterion.com. That's mm. right. Wes Anderson has a sneaky backdoor deal with Criterion Collection where all his films do eventually get that beautiful treatment of physical media where they release it ever so elegantly with all these little bells and whistles whistling, not unlike... The fantastic Mr. Fox himself. He loves to whistle. And click. <laughs> he loves to click, just like Adam Sandler and, yep. <laughs> and Henry Wrinkler like do. Like Sandler style, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to read you the synopsis from Criterion.com. Mm. Here we go. Fantastic Mr. Fox is a story of a clever, quick, nimble, and exceptionally well-dressed animal. A compulsive chicken thief turned newspaper reporter, Mr. Fox settles down with his family in a new foxhole in a beautiful tree, directly adjacent to three enormous poultry farms owned by three ferociously vicious farmers, Bogus, Bun, and Bean. Mr. Fox simply cannot resist. Wes Anderson's adaptation of Raoul Dahl's classic children's novel is a meticulous work of stop-motion animation featuring vibrant performances by George Clooney, Meryl Streep, Jason Schwartzman, Willem Dafoe, Michael Gambon, and Bill Murray. That was really good. I actually, you know, I can't fault the Criterion people for that. Whoever's doing their copywriting there... Very creative, uh, very informative. And- Beautifully adjectivized as well, I yes. would say. Yeah, Not unlike so. the works of the madman in tweed and corduroy mm. himself, Mr. Mm. Wes Anderson. The Devil Wears Elbow Patches. That's a movie that I would make about Wes Anderson. <laughs> and he treats you like shit throughout the whole thing. You know, I weirdly, I watch, because I, I still am one of those dipshits that loves the Royal Tenenbaums. And uh, I watched oh, dude, the- that's great dipshit behavior. I'm one of those dipshits <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah, it's just like one of the obvious mm. movies. It's a classic gateway movie, right? Like, yeah, but- exactly. And you'd think you'd outgrow it. And sometimes you do, but you come back. You come back time and time again. Yep. You come back <laughs> Let me put my dipshit hat on and watch <laughs> dipshit, it. Dipshit hat on, fucking spin the <laughs> propeller on it. <laughs> and fucking hovering the New York. So, but yeah, I watched, hello, uh, dipshit speaking. Yeah, I'm watching Royal Tenenbaums. I'm still a dipshit. Dipshit o'clock, yeah. <laughs> I watched this 45-minute making of the Royal Tenenbaums, oh, wow. which is like Wes pre-Tweed era. So, he's just like- <gasps> What's he wearing? Just like fucking normal clothes and shit, like t-shirts what? and jeans. Get out! And no, shit. he's not wearing a t-shirt. It's what the super fuck? Super weird because he looks so dorky and he's got unfashionable glasses and his hair's kind of shorter. And oh he's god, like- is he wearing those glasses of the era that were frameless? Yeah, like just little- yeah. Those oh ugly, yuck! I hate ugly them. Frameless glasses. Yuck! I hate them so it's much. It's so weird to see that era of Wes when he's like, he has the vision. He knows what he wants his characters to be dressed like, mm. and clearly at some point during production, he's like, oh fuck it, I'm just gonna dress like all these guys. Do. <laughs> I'm one of these guys. I'm gonna dress like Richie Tenenbaum, and and yeah. then by the time they're promoting the movie, he's wearing the suit. He's got the fucking Italian shoes on and shit. Wow. He's got sicker glasses. But it is cool because he, he doesn't seem like an asshole. For a control no. freak, he also seems like a pretty collaborative, yes. open person who enjoys the opinions of others and stuff like that. 
And I actually don't even know if I would consider him a control freak. I think that while he is invested in every element of like the production of his films personally, I think it gives his films this really handmade quality. And I think that's due to the collaboration. George Harrison style. Yeah, hand- handmade films. <laughs> Not unlike George Harrison's production company, former <laughs> Beatle turned movie mogul of the United Kingdom. Who is this podcast for? <laughs> It's for a couple of dipshits that love Rushmore, that love a love references to the Beatles production companies. There's probably some kid out there listening to this, and when I said his films have a handmade film quality, someone in their head just goes, with Mel and I, I hope they mention handmade films from George Harrison's production company. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, his films have this handmade quality, Mm -hmm. and I think that is all in the strength of his collaborative efforts. I think that his films have this beautiful collaboration to them and I think it's kind of never more clear than it is here and revisiting this film I went back and watched some of the production materials the behind the scenes and I think what really struck me is I've known forever that part of the making of this film was they went out into locations to record some of the dialogue Mm. and in my head I always thought that was to have it sound and reverberate naturally so if there's a scene set out in the field they take George Clooney out to the field and then record his dialogue there in person. I think in my head, I always thought it would be to capture the organic sound. But watching it, I'm like, this is clearly to get Georgie boy into character, get him into the zone, Mm. get him playing and get him finding all like the happy accidents that come on the way of making a movie Mm. or like the accidents in dialogue, all the accidents in sound, all the accidents in performance that make something feel alive and make something feel a bit vibrant. And I'd never really considered that before until watching these and it felt like such a perfect discovery. And the question I wanted to throw to you, this is Wes Anderson's first collaboration with George Clooney. Mm -hmm. Do you think that The Fantastic Mr. Fox is the best Oceans film? Wow, great call. Yeah, it's kind of fun because it's like a Danny Ocean that I wish we got to see in the Soderbergh films, you know, he's literally retired and has a kid and a wife and shit. I mm-hmm. kind of, I love that idea of this man's become a family man. He's tried to become an intellectual, you know, he writes for the paper and shit, but he just can't control his animal instincts. That's a classic Danny Ocean setup. Let's get Danny. He's a fucking schlub. He's schlepping around. He's a sports writer, maybe. Oh, God. And he works with Ray Barone. He works with Ray Barone. And he- oh, God. And then newspaper office just moves to Vegas opposite the biggest <laughs> casino. <laughs> He's writing for the Vegas Gazette. Oh, okay. This is a beautiful picture. And he keeps looking out the window and thinking, God, I just got to go in one last time. I can't help myself. It's not even for vengeance. It's just because it's who he is. Mm, totally. And I think what I love most about this film is a Wes Anderson nurse about it. Because mm. this is based on a Roald Dahl book mm. and it is quite faithful to the book. The only difference is- they kind of add more to it. They lengthen it. They start it with him out there in the world doing early heists with his wife, and mm. then they get captured. And it's kind of like he gets trapped in this psychological cage by his wife saying, I've got to have a kid very soon. We need to change our lives. Mm. And then he gets kind of trapped down in that world. He keeps getting that call back to it. And that feels very much like the absent fathers of Wes Anderson's previous films. Mm, yeah. 
absolutely. This time around, I watched it. I mean, I've always liked this movie, but I've, I, it's not one that I would return to if I'm putting on a Wes Anderson film. You know, if I'm putting my dipshit hat on, yeah, I'll usually return to one of the first three films or four films, you know. Yeah. But this time around, as I was viewing it, I thought to myself out loud, this might be his best Movie. Yeah. And also, I think this might be his last truly great movie. Oh, I don't know if I can agree to that because hopefully the guy's got a few more innings left. Well, I mean, I hope he has some more too, but like of what comes afterwards- they're all pretty good, but I think Fantastic Mr. Fox may be the peak of the current filmography. I would agree that it could be the peak. I think I love Grand Budapest Hotel too much to say that it is shit, like you're saying. You're I don't saying it's think complete, it's shit, but I also garbage. don't love it. I tried to rewatch it recently and I turned it off like half an hour in. I was like, oh. Because you think it's shit and trash. I don't think it's shit or trash. I think it's crap and rubbish. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Mr. Fancy. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Lo- I'll be honest. I don't love Grand Budapest Hotel. And I'll be honest. I think it's miraculous. You, that's the difference between you and me. I'm a minimalist. You're a maximalist, and it that's is true. too maximalist for me. <laughs> If you were to look at the frames of our setups right now, you have a very minimalist setup, just yeah. looking straight into your house, beautifully dressed. Me, I've got a fucking bookshelf full of crap about to fall on me and I'm about to die any second. <laughs> yeah, my house has like just a handful of records and some salt lamps and yours is like freaking museum of Blu-rays and shit. <laughs> it's a freaking Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium behind Magorium-esque. me, esque one thing I really do love about this George Clooney character is the movie starness of George Clooney being really tapped into. And I have this great quote from the Matt Zoller Sites Wes Anderson compendium book. Mm. And it is from Wes Anderson, the interviewer that goes in parallel with this movie. Zoller Sites asked him, what was it about Clooney that made you think of him? He says, well, I think I just kind of believed he was the guy, you know. There is something very heroic about him. Watching Michael Clayton- I I thought that's a real movie star performance. I just can't imagine anybody you root for more. You want him to be the hero when he's at his worst. And he's often at his worst in Mr. Fox. And I think he's somebody you'd follow in that situation. And the other thing is his voice. And he just starts talking about how great his voice is for this character. That's an interesting thing because a lot of times now in an animated film, you'll get a you'll get name actors kind of mm. doing voice roles. It's yeah, kind of like, like a Zach Braff or something. Yeah, some of the most famous like a guys Dan in the world. Soda or you know, like uh, yeah. that other motherfucker that played the snowman in Frozen. Whatever his oh name is. fuck that little freak. <laughs> <laughs> That fucking freakazoid, whatever his That little name. freak. Uh, the guy who played LeFou in the, yeah, in the adaptation yeah. of Beauty and the Beast. I saw that. I said, Le fuck off. I'm sick of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking guy. This freaking guy already. Book a Mormon? Book a moron. This guy stinks. <laughs> yeah, I think he's one of the greats. But, you know, that's he's where you want to do comedian. Yeah. He's up there with the greats for me, such as Stephen Wright. <laughs> so, actually, Stephen Wright would be a great voice actor. Why isn't he tapped more to do stuff? Well, I would love him to play a radio DJ <laughs> Well, I've got some news for you. In the <laughs> next movie we watch, you might have your wish come true. You know, when, when we see these big stars get cast in voice roles, very few of them have a distinctive vocal quality. 
Mm. And it can often be, you can be watching one of these fucking Pixar movies or usually a DreamWorks one and be like, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know who any of these people are. Yeah. They could well, be Mike anyone. Myers. I know who he is. I know Mike Myers. I know Eddie Murphy. Yeah. And then anyone else could be anyone else. But I was worried actually on this rewatch that George Clooney would just kind of be lost. I, mm. But then it wasn't until I started watching it, I realized how actually beautiful this motherfucker's voice is. Like, he's an expressive actor. I've always attributed that to his eyeballs. We talk about his face. The way he can contort every little muscle in his face. He's a great facial actor. But he's also a great vocal actor. He can be warm and charming and intense, Mm. alpha male, beta male. Like, he can do so much within his voice. Mm. It's pretty amazing. Actually, the whole cast is great vocally. I think it's a really well-cast movie. Mm. And not just like the voice actors that are beautiful stars such as Meryl Streep, Jason Schwartzman, Willem Dafoe, Michael Gambon, and Bill Murray, but so Hang on, many- are we back on Criterion.com? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually was off the top of my head, I promise. <laughs> but the way that these characters are all like sculpted mm. and Wes Anderson talked about- the way that he kind of expanded the universe of Roald Dahl, because, you know, he starts the story early. He starts it in the heyday, the prime of Fantastic Mr. Fox. And then the book starts with him living underneath this tree. And mm. he thought, well, what do I need to do? I need to have this tree. He lives in this tree now. So I guess he had to buy the tree. So maybe he's got to talk to this real estate agent. And then the real estate agent becomes a character. Mm. And it kind of became this way of him ascribing all these jobs and names to characters that kind of already existed in the book Mm. or didn't exist and had to invent them to fit into the world. And I think that's something that's like really enticing about this film, especially on the rewatch, especially at looking at it as a bit of a genre study where he kind of ascribes all these roles to these different characters and how they fit into the greater plot of the film as far as it goes into becoming a heist film. I mean, I'm a sucker for that sort of stuff too, like the municipality of a fictional world. Mm. I mean, I like it with Monsters, Inc. and shit like that where it's just these are fictional creatures, but they also have boring jobs and there's a mayor and shit like that. I I find that really amusing. I also love the fact that the main characters of this movie are like, it's kind of a family drama at parts. Mm. I was trying to figure out, is this aimed at kids or is this aimed at people in their 20s and 30s? And I assume it's both, Mm. but there's so much real family almost kitchen sink drama going on in here. Like this is a, a father who's betrayed his- family (laughs) he's like lied to his wife she's feeling herself pulling away from him he's dismissive to his own son his son is also pulling away his wife is like withholding a pregnancy from him there's one point where she says i wish i never married you and it's it's almost intense Mm, i think that that's really healthy for kids because you know a lot of the stuff that resonates with us still that we saw when we were children a lot of the things that introduce us to the darker elements of the world or the more real elements of the world but they are aimed at children and they are devised as communication to children and i think with this It kind of is the product of a very interesting filmmaker working through 
the text of a very interesting author mm. and their sensibilities finding this cohesive meld, almost like two jigsaw pieces coming together where it doesn't really encroach on the other. It's not like one is replacing the sensibilities of the other, but it's like their sense of humor finding this same ground where I think, mm. you know, a lot of Roald Dahl's stories that I remember growing up and loving, there is like this exciting, almost disgusting element to them mm. or this kind of nasty world that he's showing in a very storybook fashion. And mm. I think that storybook fashion is so part of Wes Anderson's world building is it's like almost storybook, almost Sonnenfeldian story building, if you will. <laughs> like F. Gary Gray-esque. Yeah, F. Gary Gray-esque or Burton-esque, if you will. I mean, actually, I won't. I won't. I you won't shouldn't. Say you really shouldn't. No, no, yeah. no. But I think it's that storybook element that combines them. And then it's Wes Anderson's sensibility of these family dynamics kind of mm. pa- pairing together. And, like, what is a heist movie if not a film about a family coming together and finding their unique part in their family that they fit in and their role that they each play in their family? Yeah, and I think that I like that it's really literalized in this movie with especially the relationship with his son, Ash, who's voiced by Jason Schwartzman. The who Schwartz. stars the film alongside Willem Dafoe, Michael oh, okay. Gambon, we're and Bill Murray. On, we're back on Criterion.com. Okay. <laughs> You've got to get off that website. You're addicted okay, to close it. close window. You're addicted to it. Okay, just a few more seconds, actually. No. <laughs> <laughs> your, your partner comes in. Are you on Criterion.com again? Like, no, I was masturbating. I swear to God. I promise I was relieving my sexual frustration. I was on jerkmate.com, I swear to God. I was looking for a mate to jerk with, I, I promise. Ch- I was on chat roulette, I swear, I swear. I was jacking off to Omegle, okay? <laughs> I was jacking off on Omegle, I promise you. <laughs> but, um, I think it's- I love that it's literally a family story and they all- Rather than it's a team of experts that all know exactly where they fit in in a heist team, ocean style- it's a group of misfits who all have their own eccentricities that then are revealed to be relevant and important to surviving the heist, surviving the siege, surviving like the whole Bogus Bunsen Bean army, especially the Ash character. I found that so moving this time around, thinking like this is a kid who so wants to get his father's approval. He knows his dad was like a major athlete and a fucking stud and everyone loves him and shit like that. And he's just this short little weirdo who doesn't quite fit in and he's imaginative and he's not maybe the most athletically minded and he just has to learn, I guess, that he needs to stop trying to be someone else. He needs to just Mm. embrace the fact that he's little and weird and his dad loves him no matter what. And I think that's so sweet. I think that's the essence of why we love Wes Anderson is that he finds these melancholic tones Mm. and then finds this sweetness inside them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is it a heist movie? That was my question I was going to ask you because there is robberies in this film and there are heist elements, but the bulk of the movie is almost made up by this war or Siege, like Assault on Precinct 13 style. I would classify this as a heist movie because it fulfills a lot of the tropes that I consider to be 
part and parcel the foundations of heist films. And I think it does so in similar ways that we talked about Inception being a heist movie Mm. in that it is very expository. It is very like matter of fact dialogue that does create like the balance of exposition and character. But also we've got not just the team coming together, but I think more important to that is the idea of the plan being mapped out. And Mm. the plan is mapped out in very much that Ocean's Eleven way where we like see in their diagrams and stuff of this is what's going to go down and this is all the stuff that we need to plan and to go in. And I think to me, that's the key element of a heist film is the idea of setting it up with a plan, Hmm. going into the plan, and then it's the subversion of the plan falling apart. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of that film that you and I quite like, The Hot Rock Big time. This is such a hot rock freaking update in a lot of ways. Because there's there's multiple robberies, things go wrong, there's role reversals and everything like that. And I I love that in my memory of this movie, it was just they planned one big heist of the three farms, kind of like Oceans. Mm. And that is part of it, but that's a very small part of it. There's also like- the kids plan their own heist to get Mr. Fox's tail back. That goes wrong. So, then they plan, the adults plan a heist to get the kid back and all that kind of shit. It's kind of like yeah. lots of different back and forths with little robberies. I think I like that so much, especially mm. when they become this family of crime, where crime becomes the family business and mm. not just the family business, it becomes the way of life. And I love the ending of this film. I love the way this film wraps up where they are forced to live underground in Mm. all these tunnels and they form this tunnel community and then they find their oasis, their utopia, which is the supermarket co-owned by Bogus Bunsen Bean where they can freely go in and take what they need from the supermarket at Mm. all times. And I think that is a very, like, sweet, picturesque way to capture the sense of this is a family of bandits now and this is the bandit lifestyle. Yeah, it's but it's also kind of sad, isn't it? It's kind of a melancholy ending. The woods have been Mm. bulldozed and blown up and they are living in the sewer where everyone's shit and piss goes. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Famously. That's like your shit, your piss, everything goes down there. Yeah, of course. I do lots of pisses and shits and stuff. And they all go down there. Oh, I would say yes, 100%. Very few times do I miss. (laughs) Very few times do I miss. And when you miss, boy, do you hear about it from your partner. Oh, Oh, yes. I I have to promise that I was trying my hardest. But then, And then I also kept thinking this time around, how long can they sustain this lifestyle of just robbing from the supermarket every week or whatever? Probably forever. (laughs) I mean, look, you live in Sydney. There's so many freaking rats running around our city. It's the same kind of thing. Do you think they're stealing from supermarkets and dragging shit back to the- The rats. Yeah. I've seen it. Yeah. When I walk through Central, like at night, I see rats going around like all the grocery stores down there. Pulling stuff away, and I'm like, oh god, there's a Remy and his buddy hanging out. <laughs> I get excited. I mean, but I, I kind of like that. I think this melancholy ending, it's sort of happy, mm. sort of tragic, is what Wes does well. And I wonder with 
movies like this that are maybe people are taking their kids to or putting on for their kids at home mm. on the wonderful format of a uh, digital versatile disc. Yes, purchase from the Criterion Collection. Yeah. How do you think kids respond to this sort of tone? Well, I can only speak to and attest to and testify mm. to how I responded to these tones when I was a child, and that is like in favor, very favorably of them. But I think as a kid. And I think this is true for kids at large. There's like a tendency to baby children now and to really monitor what they're watching and it to be very soft edges mm. and with very few exceptions. And I think that a lot of the stuff that made me become the freakazoid that I am today are things that challenged me or things that had a deeper resonance. A lot of these were Roald Dahl adaptations, like The mm. Witches, the Nicholas Rogue oh, yeah. adaptation of The Witches. Yeah, I loved that. That was so powerful for me because I thought it was like the first time I felt like spookiness and like the ideas yeah. of those kind of things traipsing into my world and the ideas of that ending of that film where the kid is stuck, stuck as, as a, a mouse. mouse. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, so true. I love I love Roald Dahl's books. I've still got the Roald Dahl collection in my bookcase. And the guy is not without criticism, let it be known. Yes, yes. Like he all- is probably fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, like look, all a lot of great artists are weird are weird fucks, but mm-hmm. his writing for children was quite good. I got into his writing for adults as well when I was actually quite young. I think I was like twelve oh, and really? I was reading I read Going Solo when I was twelve and What's that? Well, it's like a memoir. Like he wrote two memoirs oh, wow. about his life before the war and his early life during the war. Mm. I read both of those when I would have been twelve or thirteen. I've got him somewhere on my bookshelf. So the only adult stuff that I know from him is like you only live twice and like the James Bond shit. That yeah, he so he wrote that Bond film for mm-hmm. Ian Fleming, was that the deal? And Fleming wrote yeah. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was some Some shit like Funny deal they did. Well, excuse me, sir. I reckon you couldn't do what I do. I think I could do what you do. And they challenge each other or some shit. And then there was- uh, There's another collection of short stories for adults that Tarantino adapted one of them into a short film for Four Rooms. Four Rooms. Oh, yeah, that's right. The one with the lighter. I don't know if you remember that scene, but it's someone makes a bet that with a Zippo lighter, he can strike a perfect flame six times. And if he doesn't- Mm. He'll cut his finger off or something like that. And then it just becomes this tense kind of game of Russian roulette. Mm. So I really love I love his work and I loved the witches yeah. when I was a kid. I remember people still talk about that adaptation. People of our generation talk about mm, that adaptation. It's marvelous. But they talk a lot of people talk about it as, oh, I'm traumatized from the witches when I was a kid. And I'm like, fucking are you serious? It's makeup. Yeah. It's fake. I think it's also like I love the ending because yes. the ending is so it's that same sweet melancholy yes. where the boy and his grandmother are happy because they're going to spend the rest of their lives together because the lifespan of a mouse is the same as like a 90-year-old woman that's going to die any freaking second. Yeah, it's so tragic when you begin to unpack the idea of a 10-year-old boy who won't yeah. get to grow up. But, but And I'm not sweet. unlike Alan Covert. I'm a grandma's boy. Yeah, you are a grandma's boy. You're a yaya's boy. So, I, I, I'm one of the members of the, the divine secrets of the yaya sisterhood. Yeah. I know about the yeah. secrets. But, so, it is tragic, but it is sweet. Sweet. And I think that is that's a real Roald Dahl thing. It's also a real Wes Anderson thing. Mm. And if anyone here is listening has kids, make them watch this shit. Make yeah, them, I make think them so. watch it. 
And you know the other things I've been thinking of recently when I had Kate Jinx on to talk about Petite Maman, I talked about how much it reminded me of the animals of Farthing Wood. And that was a show that I grew up a lot that has a lot of those same kind of tones that are very mature for children about death and life and mm. everything in between. Uh, like yeah, fucking I, and stuff like that. <laughs> well, yeah, some of the some of the creatures in this film have have fucked. They've coiled. They've they've fucked a few times, which is exciting to think about. Do you think that there's a cut of this movie where not unlike set it off? That Mr. Fox puts on some sexy R and B music and does like drags body slide, but <laughs> drags his detached tail down <laughs> Mrs. Fox's butt crack. I hope so. I mean, I don't want to see it, but I'd like to know that they all, you know, worked on it and spent mm. some time on it. And- <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a moment of beauty I'd love to bring up to you before we wrap things up. The moment with the wolf. How did yeah. you feel rewatching that moment? I love shit like that. You know. I'm a sucker for a, a little motif, especially a very symbolic one. Like the wolf is symbolic of the purest wild animal that there is. It's totally free. It doesn't live in society. It does what it wants. And Fantastic Mr. Fox is aspiring to that, but he's also afraid of it. And the end of the movie is him being confronted by his fear of it, recognizing a kinship with it, but knowing that that's not him. And I think that's really special that he kind of, Holds his fist up, it does the same, it runs off into the wilderness and he just drives home to his family. I think that's kind of sweet that he knows his place. Ah, couldn't have said it better myself, Cam. Why don't we give away some Oscars to this beautiful movie? First up, we're going to give an Oscar away to excellence in the art of character acting. Mm. And now this Mm. is a film that has many great characters in it, such as character actors like Jason Schwartzman, Mm -hmm. Willem Dafoe, Mm -hmm. Michael Gambon, or even, heck, Bill Murray. Sure. But there's someone who stands clear to me in this as being a little bit unconventional, if you will, Mm -hmm. to be part of a movie. This is a guy called Jarvis Cocker. I'm such a big Jarvis Cocker fan. Fuck. Fuck, I love Jarvis. Uh, For anyone who's not not familiar with Jarvis Cocker, formerly the lead singer of the band Pulp. Pulp Mm -hmm. were a fantastic Britpop band. I even hesitate to use the term Britpop. They predate Britpop. They were just like a cool, fun indie rock band from the United Kingdom who got swept up in the Britpop movement in the middle of Oasis and Blur and all that shit. And they just were their own thing. They were always very funny, very witty. Their songs were more dancey. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they used a lot of synthesizers and disco They beats. made fun of common people, though. I think that's rude of no, when English no, people no. do that, that stuff. Song, that song is actually pro-common people. These are, oh, okay. These are working class people, the boys in Pulp. They are from Sheffield. They're working wow. class fellows, and they were like actually. David. If you listen to the song, they're actually making fun of posh people. Okay, great. I've only heard the title of the song, and I assumed these are some upper crust guys making fun of common people. How rude could you be? Actually, the opposite is true. They are making fun God. of people who went to posh schools. People oh like Damon Albin. They're making fun of the art school set. They're making fun of the fucking Oxbridge God. motherfuckers. See, this is good stuff. This is the kind of shit Randy Newman should be taking a lesson from when he makes awful music making fun of how short some people can be. No, 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 no. I think you're misunderstanding the Randy Newman song. That's actually- pr- it's, it's making fun of- 
of like people that are discriminative. It's making fun of again. It's making fun of the majority, the uh, the one percenters. You know, okay. it's a, it's a satire on racism, uh, and just, that's funny. Well, satire is very funny. Oh, okay, I laughing. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it just sort of seems to me like you just don't really get you just don't really get British sense of humor, and that's really sad. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty sad actually. But I love I love Jarvis. I love Jarvis in this movie. He plays Petey. He sings a song, an original song. It's fun, mm-hmm. it's silly, it's stupid, it's fun. I wish there was more of him in it. And he looks yeah. identical to how Jarvis Cocker looks, which is It's sick. Cool. I love like the glasses. I love the kind of wiry hair, the widely swept over hair. It looks so great in the film. Yeah, Jarvis, I, I'm I've never been one of those guys that wishes I was taller, you know. I'm a healthy five mm. ten, um, yeah. average height. It's totally fine. But when I it's see fine. Jarvis Cocker in a skinny suit, with these yeah. big glasses, I think actually I could do with being six four. Yeah, it would be cool <laughs> to wear a skinny suit one day. All I can wear is boxy fits. I'd love to just be six four, wearing a fucking like a suit, looking like a like work at a mortician's place or mm. some shit. <laughs> yeah, give me that look. That's the that's the look I'd go for if I if I could pull it off. I would love to give another Oscar away cam to mm. Wes Anderson himself. Wow. And I don't even know how to particularly phrase this, but it's something that has been pondered in my brain recently of Wes Anderson that I find fascinating, that I don't think people talk about enough, is the idea that Wes Anderson is a good old boy from Texas, Mm. and then most of his movies are about this imagined intelligentsia of New York or European intellectualism, Mm. these imagined worlds. And I think that is the beauty of Wes Anderson, is he captures this idealism of these worlds that he's imagined from the far-off place that you could ever be from these worlds of like the New Yorker and like the illustrations of these places. So I think that's the thing that I love most about his work is that it's the ideal of it all, like the utopian vision that is still mired in like the realities of sadness and the realities of melancholiness. Yeah, I love that too. It's kind of how I feel being from Newcastle and looking to like anywhere else, fucking Sydney, Melbourne, you know, New York, Los Angeles, London, anywhere, and just thinking- San Francisco. I I can imagine what it would be like to be part of those big art scenes, but I also have no fucking idea what it would be like. So mm. I'm applying nostalgia, you know, the shit that I listened to when I was younger and imagining that's what it would be like to be in New York and living near the yeah. village and all that shit. Oh, yeah, the Ramones are around? Oh, my God. I'd be Is that what you imagine? I'd be friends with the Ramones. I'd be friends with Debbie Harry. I'd be mates oh, with wow. David Byrne and shit. And they'd all yeah. say to me, yep, you're the best. You're the best. <laughs> Andy Warhol's filming me getting sucked off for 14 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. I'm part of the cool punk art scene. And everyone's saying, you're the best. You're actually yeah, you're the best. factory girl. You're like factory you're girl. You're actually the coolest one out of all of us. <laughs> Lou Reed leans over to me and he goes- he, I'm going to tell you a secret. You're the coolest guy I know. And that's why all I'm sucking you off, babe. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I was trying to think about when we think about our total reboot segment, how would we reboot mm. this movie? Mm. And it kind of got me thinking, like, what are the things I like about this movie? One of the things I like about Wes Anderson and I like this genre aspect of Wes Anderson. Mm. Uh, so I was trying to think of like, what are the other great crime films mm. or crime novels or true crime mm. that you would love to see Wes Anderson 
put his twiddly little fingers upon. I can tell you one right now off the top of my head that I think I would love to see Wes Anderson tackled. Wow, wow, wow. I'm ready. I have been making my way through the series of Fletch books. Oh, fuck. That is already, I'm sick. And, like, you, I think you and I have talked about the God, Chevy Chase I'm going to get Lou Reed to suck you off. <laughs> this is such a good idea. <laughs> I love the Chevy Chase Fletch film. I think it's mm. really fun and really cool. But the books are much more set in the world of intelligentsia, novelists, mm. and art thievery and all that kind oh. of shit. Especially the second novel, Confess Fletch, which is actually being adapted right now with John Hamm is the lead, and um, yep. I think Greg Matola might be directing it. Okay, that's cool to me. Which is kind of cool. I like Greg Matola's style. But God, that's- I wish Zach Braff got that version <laughs> up with the guy from Scrubs, Bill Lawrence. That book and the ones that preceded are kind of set in that world of, yeah, art, thievery, high art, mm. and fletches this kind of- schlubby, shitty reporter who's thrust into, like, the upper crust world. Mm. I could really see Wes doing that with a great lead, having someone who's, like, an underdog who's kind of forced to pretend to be smarter and more intelligent and rich than they are, kind of dealing with sophisticated criminals. I'd love to see Wes Anderson tackle a Fletch story. That's such a great pick. I was kind of thinking about classic noirs was where I was looking at. So, I was looking at uh, The Thin Man by Dashiell Hammett, which is a Christmas set Mm. noir film about a husband and wife detective PI duo. And that is kind of set in that same kind of arty world as well of like upper crust New York. And then another one I thought of was Strangers on a Train by Patricia Highsmith. Oh, very cool. Yeah, he could do some good stuff with Highsmith's work. The guy should do some more train pictures, I think. Darjeeling Limited. Great train picture. We've got to get this guy on the locomotive stream more often, in my opinion. You know what he could adapt is um, train pulling into station. That would be exciting. Oh, too freaky. Too freaky. His first horror movie. Oh, I couldn't handle it. Could not handle this shit. (laughs) Uh, Cam, this was such a delight to enter the world of Fantastic Mr. Fox and the unique mind of the Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium himself, Wes Anderson. Uh, Next week on the podcast, we're continuing with heist movies and we're Mm going to be looking at one that we are freaking officially adding to the list. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's been talked about privately between you and I, should we, shouldn't we, will we, mm-hmm. won't we, we decided we shall. A lot of people say that we are will they, won't they podcasting yep, team, and yep. the answer is we shall. We shall. Shall they, shan't they? They shall. Uh, we're tackling a film by a gentleman known only as QT, a.k.a. the Foot King. <laughs> it's talking, of course, about Reservoir Dogs. By Quentin Tarantinoid. We're going to be talking about one of the most dialogue-driven movies of all time, Reservoir Dogs. Res Dogs, brother. Yeah, dude. I'm really pumped to get into this shit. Oh, we're going to get deep in this <laughs> shit. Get fucking Reservoir hectic Dogs. on this fucking movie, man. We're going to talk about fucking Res Dogs, dude. Fucking awesome, man. Fucking VHS, brother. Freaking Steelers Wheel, dude. <laughs> oh, stuck in the middle with toes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to do that. If you want to hear more from us, go to patreon.com slash total reboot for five bucks a month. You will get 
an extra podcast and access mm-hmm. to our cinephile registry on Facebook. And Which, of course, shoot. is how this episode even came about because someone suggested mm-hmm. that and we thought it was such a freaking good idea. We told Bottle Rocket to fuck off. Yep. We got another Wes Anderson movie we're going to do instead. That's true. And uh, what else do we need to plug? Uh, in the meantime, listen to Cameron's podcast, The Becky and Cam Hotline. Mm-hmm. Beautiful podcast to the funniest people solving your problems. And I'll give a shout out to a podcast I was just a guest on the episode episode is out now called the cancelled movie report where it's like a podcast like this if you like popular culture banter it's like that where they talk about movies that never happened the Mm. infamous films that we've all heard about and i was on the episode that is a two-parter talking about darren aronofsky's ill-fated adaptation of the dark knights the batman year one movie and it's talking about the movie, funny conversation, great banter, intercut with beautiful audio play recreations of the scripts read That's by so actors, cool. voice actors, great soundscapes around them. It's called The Cancelled Me Report. I'll put the link to the show notes. It's a great podcast. If you listen to this, you'll freaking love it. That's sick. Great call. Great call. I'm going to pop that on. I'm going to do. I'm gonna listen to it while I'm at the gym. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be on the treadmill. I'll be listening your voice for a fucking change and I'll be like holy (laughs) shit I can't escape this fucking guy Usually you call it the treadmill, so you're slowing down to get on the treads with this one. I, I just sit down on the treadmill and listen to podcasts. <laughs> you just wear, you put like one of those assisted toilet chairs over the top <laughs> so you can run your feet while sitting down on the podcast. <laughs> so that is next week on the podcast. We're talking about res dogs. In yep. the meantime, have a great life. Enjoy cinema. Respect Wes Anderson. Put your dipshit hat on and chuck on a couple of classics. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>